Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Welcome to today's podcast presentation sponsored by ACE. The broadcast is entitled Considerations and Concerns When Implementing Combination Therapy for Type 2 Diabetes. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Freeman, Professor of Internal Medicine and Chairman of the Division of Endocrinology at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. As moderator for today's program, I am joined by our esteemed speaker, Dr. Cheryl Rosenfeld, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine, Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine, Endocrinology Subspecialty Education Coordinator for the Prime Health Consortium Internal Medicine Residency Program and in private practice with North Jersey Endocrine Consultants. Let's begin. Generating treatment programs for type 2 diabetes can be challenging and warrants careful consideration. Today, more than ever, practitioners are faced with several concerns covering a balance of both safety and efficacy with various agents. The possibilities and combinations of these are growing and become more complicated. Let's invite Dr. Rosenfeld into the conversation with a series of questions to enlighten us. Dr. Rosenfeld, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be doing this podcast for ACE today. Very welcome. Let's begin with a series of questions, please. Let's begin by discussing, first, the established clinical guidelines for type 2 diabetes. When were they first available? And how may this facilitate practitioners' decisions to treat type 2 diabetes? Understanding clinical guidelines necessitates looking back at the history of guidelines. And I'm going to focus on treatment of our type 2 diabetes mellitus patients and limit my discussion to glucose-lowering agents. The first ADA Standards of Medical Care for Patients with Diabetes Mellitus was published in 1989. The management of diabetes and goals for care were to be individualized with consideration given to things like age of the patient, their daily schedule, their activity, food, social issues, complications, and concurrent medical conditions. Over 30 years later, I don't think that anyone would argue that we are currently embracing individualized care and glycemic goals. It should be recognized that the treatment options for glucose control in 1989 were few. We had insulin and sulfonylureas, and those were the only available medications for our type 2 diabetes mellitus patients. As newer agents of medications were approved by the FDA with different mechanisms of action, and multiple medications appeared in each drug class, it became overwhelming to the clinician to try to choose the right medication or combination of medications for each individual patient. In 2013, ACE published their first comprehensive diabetes management algorithm. While lifestyle modification and metformin were cornerstones of therapy and that was similar to other guidelines at the time, this algorithm was the first to provide some guidance with regard to what level of A1C should one start dual or triple combination therapy in a newly diagnosed patient, how to prioritize glucose lowering agents by side effect profile or even potential benefits, 
and when to add or intensify insulin therapy in type 2 diabetes patients. Many clinicians still struggle with when to intensify therapy, how to combine the medications correctly, and at least one retrospective study of over 7,000 patients in one healthcare system documented that nearly 63% of patients who were not at treatment targets did not have therapy intensified within a six-month period, which is far longer than the three months that we usually advise. Clinical inertia is not limited to the United States, and several reasons have been cited for failure of intensification of therapy after monotherapy failure. So one of them is clinician lack of knowledge regarding pharmacology. So we have all these new agents and it's very confusing. Another one is clinician lack of confidence in being able to manage insulin, particularly complex insulin regimens. And, you know, in general, healthcare providers have a lack of confidence in managing complex regimens. And this is partially due to educational needs related to diabetes guidelines and how to intensify therapy. So many have no formal diabetes education, and this applies both to clinicians as well as patients. We have unfortunately increased clinician workload and time constraints, and we have patient resistance to pharmacologic interventions, as well as non-adherence to treatment. The cost of treatment remains a significant concern, particularly in the United States. There are concerns about polypharmacy, and that is more important actually in the elderly. There's fear of hypoglycemia, fear of adverse effects of the medications, and fear of weight gain, which can be seen with things like thiazolidine dions, insulin, and sulfonylureas. Cheryl, might I interrupt you for just a second? Sure. You know, it's interesting. There was a perspective that was published in January Diabetes Care, January 2021, by Hill-Briggs et al. And they also listed barriers to care, and these were a little bit different in that they're more up to date in different ways. And this had to do with the difficulty, once again, in how to intensify treatment, what the barrier is. And, and a couple of them were basically the patient's access to healthcare, simply access to their provider. Next is stuff that we never think of, like the housing of the patient, where they're living and what the environment is like. Is it safe, not safe? Their social class. And so we're getting a little personal in terms of who they are and what their finances are, their ethnicity. It's been clearly shown that the disadvantage by some and so forth. And their social capital, their revenue stream, something that we as clinicians don't get involved with. We don't want to get involved with, but it has a significant impact in whether this patient is going to adhere. You know, the issue you mentioned very, very clearly is that there is a delay in not only initiation, a delay in intensification, which we'll talk about in a moment. And once we intensify, it's the ability to sustain, that's the key word, right? To sustain the intensification level. Let's talk some more, please. Continue. So I definitely hear your points. And one of the things that I think we can do as clinicians is to give a patient permission, you know, giving them permission when we talk to them to unburden themselves about some of those social aspects that they might be experiencing. So instead of just saying, hey, you didn't take your medication, you know, we can say to them, hey, what's going on? You're on a lot of medication. I don't know that I could remember to take all those things, or I don't know that I could even afford all of those medications. Are you doing okay? And it gives them the permission to unburden themselves. We still think about the individual. We're treating a population, but we're treating the individual. 
And the 2020 ACE algorithm continues to highlight individualized care and lifestyle modification. And the choice of therapy still depend upon a number of factors, you know, so it's, it's not just the clinical ones. So the patients initial A1C, what their comorbidities are. Efficacy of therapy is important. Mechanism of action, making sure you don't duplicate mechanism of action. Adherence, is the patient going to take that medication? What's the cost? Are there additional benefits to that medication, such as risk reduction for renal disease, heart disease, and liver disease? And, and most important you know, for me is safety. The other important aspect, if the patient is not at goal, therapy needs to be adjusted every three months or less until they are at goal. So don't wait, adjust the therapy. As an aside, when we look at cost, we need to take into account the total cost of care. For example, while the sulfonylurea class is inexpensive, glucose monitoring is required due to risk of hypoglycemia. And hypoglycemia itself is associated with a three times higher medical expenditure due to emergency room visits, inpatient admissions, and physician office visits. Very interesting. The barriers, the barriers that, to your point, that patients may not articulate to us, whether we're talking about monotherapy initiation of care at, at various phases of the inexorable decline of type 2 diabetes, or we're talking about combination therapy. In each and every visit, as we know, we have to entertain and introduce these barriers that may facilitate and help patients with adherence. So what I'd like to know, Cheryl, from you, please, can you describe specifically what do we mean by combination therapy? Yeah, so combination therapy in type 2 diabetes mellitus is combining two or more glucose-lowering agents, which does include insulin for our type 2s, in order to reach glucose control goals. And those goals are individualized for each patient. Each of these agents should have a different mechanism of action. And sometimes I think it's important to discuss the mechanism of action with the patient so that they understand what that drug is doing for them. So for example, if the A1C is not a goal with metformin monotherapy, we can add a GLP-1 agonist or we can add a DPP-4 inhibitor depending upon how much A1C lowering is needed as the GLP-1 agonist will lower A1C to a greater extent. If the patient is taking metformin plus a GLP-1 agonist and a third agent is needed, consider giving them an SGLT-2 inhibitor. An important point here is not to combine a GLP-1 agonist with a DPP-4 inhibitor. Since GLP-1 agonists are already resistant to DPP-4, there's no significant additional benefit provided, but the cost of treatment will be increased. Combination therapy can be considered in a treatment-naive patient as well. There are a number of reasons to do this. And the first would obviously be an A1C of 7.5 or higher at the time of treatment initiation. Dual or triple therapy could be started depending upon the degree of hyperglycemia, but this should include insulin in a patient who has symptomatic hyperglycemia. Regardless of diabetes control, adding GLP-1 agonists or SGLT2 inhibitors or both would be indicated in patients with cardiac or renal risk and the choice of which agent in each class would be based upon efficacy data for that particular cardiac or renal outcome. Interesting. It's interesting. You know, to confuse the clinician is the change in these priorities, Cheryl. As you know, 
the new guideline, the 2020 guidelines, physicians in 2021 with the ADA, they're looking at metformin differently, aren't they? They're taking metformin and putting it as priority, but the patient may have other agents, particularly a GLP as an example, to trump it if the patient has you know, intrinsic cardiovascular disease. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment, but can you talk about this priority of metformin a little deeper, please? So as I mentioned before, glucose lowering is one aspect of the consideration of which agent to use. And per both guidelines, metformin is still the preferred initial agent. And I'm talking about the ACE guidelines as well as ADA guidelines. So metformin is still the preferred initial agent. But as long as it's tolerated by the patient, so if they don't have any significant gastrointestinal issues, or it's not contraindicated, you know, and they've lowered the renal threshold to discontinue down to 30 uh, mLs per minute for creatinine clearance, but you shouldn't really start it in a patient who has a creatinine clearance of less than 45 mLs per minute. So it would be contraindicated in patients with significant renal disease. In most patients, metformin, as long as it's tolerated and patient has good renal function, it should be continued as part of combination therapy when other agents are added for the purpose of improving glucose control. So I see too many clinicians swapping the metformin out when the patient doesn't get to goal, even though the A1C may have dropped significantly with the metformin itself. You know, you just need to add something to it to gain that control. And then other agents can be added, not only for the purpose of improving glucose control, but we can also consider lowering cardiovascular risk, lowering renal risk, or improving non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Cheryl, you know, we're frequently taught to introduce diabetes agents in a treat-to-failure design. It's in its defense, in the treat-to-failure defense, it, it provides a practitioner time to evaluate, analyze the, the cost, the efficacy, the safety of each one of these individual agents. However, incorporating combination therapy may be quite beneficial to achieve a quicker A1C goal or towards A1C goal. Also, the mix may include a cardiovascular benefit product, which may not include metformin. Can you please discuss the combination therapy in the context of reducing CBD risk and even improving renal outcomes? Well, it's been my experience that most patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus require combination therapy to control glucose. The earlier that control is achieved, the better the outcomes. And we now have antihyperglycemic agents with much greater durability of effect, as well as cardiovascular risk reduction, as in the case of SGLT2 inhibitor class and with the long-acting GLP-1 agonists. And also renal risk reduction is seen with SGLT2 inhibitor class and possibly also with the long-acting GLP-1 agonists. The first agent to, to demonstrate significant cardiovascular risk reduction leading to an FDA-approved indication was empagliflozin, which demonstrated a 38% relative risk reduction in death from CV causes and 35% relative risk reduction in hospitalization for heart failure. Canagliflozin is associated with a 30% lower relative risk of progression of renal disease. Dapagliflozin is associated with a lower rate of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure. While we often discuss the benefits of each class of agents, it is important to be aware that there are no outcome studies that specifically address whether the cardiovascular or renal benefit of the combination of GLP-1 agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors is additive. 
you know, we do this just as a matter of practice, but there's actually no data to see whether or not it's additive. Other consideration with regard to early combination therapy would be to avoid weight gain and or use agents that assist with weight loss. So combining metformin with a weight neutral DPP-4 inhibitor and an SGLT2 inhibitor, which tends to cause weight loss at the outset, will assist with risk management as well as with weight. In fact, consideration should be given a pharmacologic or surgical treatment of obesity as part of the combination therapy for type 2 diabetes. Wow, it is exciting. You know, it's exciting at the same time, Cheryl, a deeper challenge. What do I mean? The conversations with our patients become more and more comprehensive as we alluded to those risk factors and barriers. But the introduction of cardiovascular risk and renal issues makes it even more complicated. Patients actually may perceive us, us endocrinologists, as a cardiologist, kind of get confused, and, and the cardiologist as an endo, and they don't know, I, I think I saw my endo, no, I saw a cardiologist, he was talking cardiology, right, Cheryl? And we, and we, Absolutely. we learned this, it's, it's interesting. And we have to transition patients to accept that. This is not a misrepresentation at all, but a necessary commitment to our patients in a complete, to address in a complete concept, a complete workup and evaluation. Well, I think as endocrinologists, we're just as good as managing all of the risk factors as anyone else. I'm glad you feel that way. I understand. You know, Dr. Rosenfeld, are there specific safety concerns when we consider combination therapy? Each individual drug class has its own set of potential adverse effects, some of which overlap. The difficulty with overlapping symptoms is that when more than one drug is started simultaneously, if the patient develops an adverse event, deciding which drug was the culprit may be impossible, and the patient may be reluctant to resume either drug class, so you'll lose two drug classes. An example of this is starting metformin, which may have gastrointestinal adverse effects at the same time as a GLP-1 agonist, which also may have GI side effects, or an alpha-glucosidase inhibitor, or a dopamine agonist. And in this situation, I tend to start one drug at a time and titrate up the dose before adding the second. But this generally occurs over a few weeks and not months. I don't wait months to see if that first treatment is going to fail. This tends not to be the case when starting a combination DPP-4 inhibitor metformin tablet, you know, because they, they do have a different side effect profile. Or if you're initially combining basal insulin with a GLP-1 agonist to require more aggressive glucose lowering at the outset. Caution should really be exercised when starting a GLP-1 with an SGLT-2 inhibitor simultaneously, as nausea from the GLP-1 agonist could exacerbate volume depletion from the SGLT-2 inhibitor. It's interesting, as we get more complicated, the practitioner is faced with more conversation in this limited EMR environment, right? They have to talk about these drug-to-drug -drug interactions, talk about self, and sometimes, as you know, the patient is placed in their decision process. They have to make the decision to cut down the insulin, right? They have to make a decision of compatibility. And Cheryl, it's your expertise that conveys this information. It's so real, and thank you. Now, let's just switch it a little bit. When we talk about combination therapy, there are FDCs or fixed dose combinations that exist. Can you tell us and share some information in that regard, please? 
Yeah, so fixed dose combinations may be very beneficial for a number of patients, particularly with regard to adherence to treatment. I have one interesting anecdote from my practice a number of years ago. I was taking a history from a gentleman, you know, and he was on the usual three antihypertensives, two drugs for his lipids, and he was taking a number of medications for glucose and then a series of other medications yet for other maladies. And uh, so I finished taking the medication history and uh, I said to him, okay, so let's talk about your diet. I said, what do you eat for breakfast? And he said, pills. So it's a very important story in regard to how we treat our patients, right? So they have a tremendous pill burden sometimes, you know, and they really feel like all they do all day long is take pills. So anything that we can do to lighten that burden, to make them feel like they're taking less medications is going to be a reason to use a fixed dose combination. So we talk about adherence. So among the many reasons that patients do not adhere to combination therapy are really treatment complexity, right? So we often forget that they're taking a lot of pills, just like my patient, forgetfulness, which I'm certainly guilty of, and cost, right? So if you're adding two expensive medications and separate tablets, might it make sense to do a combination tablet that might be a little less expensive? Studies have actually cited that less than 70% of patients were adherent to their diabetes therapy. Adherence further decreases with injectable medications. So at the end of one year, less than 35% of patients were still taking their GLP-1 agonist, mm -hmm. and similar dismal rates were seen for insulin. One approach to decrease the complexity of treatment is the use of fixed-dose combinations, and we now have multiple combinations with metformin, combinations of DPP-4 inhibitors and SGLT2 inhibitors, and we have triple oral therapy medication as well. There are also fixed ratio combinations of GLP-1 agonists and basal insulin. And while these are convenient, the patient should be educated that if any of the medications in their combination tablet or their combination injectable should be stopped, and I'll give a for instance, what about metformin and intravenous contrast, right? So then they must contact their physician for alternative medication instructions and possibly an additional prescription in that situation. But overall adherence with fixed dose combination is greater than treatment with the combination with, of the individual agents. So people do better with the fixed dose combination. And, and really, as I mentioned before, depending upon the agents used, there might be a cost savings for that patient as well. Yeah, absolutely. There have been several studies that have looked at each drug individually, compliance, adherence, time for A1C lowering, right? As And compare that with the fixed dose combination. And usually the fixed dose combination, to your point, wins. It's fascinating. But to your point also, side effects. You know, patient gets a, a fixed dose combination, has side effects. Which one is it? What do you do? How do you down titrate? So it's a challenge. It's a challenge among us, and I'm sure the audience hears the same and resonates. Wow. Time really flies by. So let me summarize by saying that combination therapy is here to stay. It's here to stay, and it's going to become more complicated. With each choice, we strive to treat with the Dr. DeFranzo's ominous octet in mind. What am I doing? Am I treating that ominous octet most effectively and efficiently? to reach for agents which not only can be introduced,
But here's the key word, as we mentioned, to be sustained. And you mentioned the discouraging information about sustaining. But that's the key. Introducing those guidelines introduced very well, but do they help sustain our efforts? Key point. To provide patients the safety and efficacy of these products in combination facilitates us to move forward. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you to our esteemed speaker, Dr. Cheryl Rosenfeld, for sharing her knowledge and experience. And of course, thank you, Ace, for giving us the opportunity to convey our ideas. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.